Hi, everybody. It's Megan. Thanks so much for coming back to Grief is My Side Hustle. I'm really excited for this episode today where I sit down with Colin Campbell, who's a writer and a director and wrote an extraordinary book called Finding the Words, Working Through Profound Loss and Hope After the Death of His Children, Ruby and Hart, in a Drunk Driving Accident. Colin also has an extraordinary show that is on the stage in New York City as well as in LA, and we've linked in the show notes how you can go see it. It's called Grief, a one-man shit show. I think you're going to really fall in love with him in this episode. There's so much warmth and hope and real concrete suggestion that he offers us through his own personal experience. You'll see that we laugh a fair amount, which I know can make some people uncomfortable, but it really is part of how we navigate grief in the body. And just a quick note, Colin and I had some wonky internet service. So we drop into the episode in a sort of sudden way, which I noticed when I was editing it. And that's because we had two false starts to start with. So be forgiving with your editor, which is me right now, as you get started in this episode. And thanks so much. Go to the show notes to learn more about Colin. And his book comes out next week, so be sure to go grab it. And don't forget, if you all are enjoying the podcast, run over to Apple Podcasts and give us a starred review and also leave us a comment. It really does help people find the podcast and get support from hearing each other's stories. Thanks so much, everybody. Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I'm your host, Megan Bearden Jarvis, and I am delighted today to be sitting down with Colin Campbell. Thank you so much for being Thank you. I'm so excited to talk to you about grief. (laughs) Right? It's the perverse thing that we get to do day in and day out. I want to ask the question that I ask all of my guests as the primary sort of let's dip in is how do you come into this space of grief and loss? Yes. So my specific loss story is that my whole family, my, my wife and my 14 year old son, Hart, and my 17 year old daughter, Ruby, and I were on a road trip to Joshua Tree, which is a town that's about two and a half hours east of Los Angeles. And we were hit by a driver who was drunk and high and speeding and hit us at 90 miles an hour. And uh, in the back seat, both my children were killed. Both Ruby and Hart died. And that, that's how I was introduced to profound loss and grief. And you write really beautifully. Before we got on Mike, I talked about how I have read your book, which has not come out yet, but it's- No, it comes out March 14th. Yeah. So it's headed out into the world. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned to you that my (laughs) sister-in-law just randomly mentioned that she is headed to a performance that you give. Is it called One Man Shit Show? Is that right? Yes. Grief, a one man shit show. Yeah. Right. So- (laughs) I have a hunch that you have built into your life a lot of room for grief and grieving. Mm. You have products that people often, you have things that you have created, a book and a show. I want to ask about that. Like what drove you to begin either the performance or the writing? How did you find those things either instinctively or under instruction? How did you come to those? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. You know, I think very early on, I discovered how, how necessary it felt to me to talk about both my grief and also Ruby and Hart. It was a really, it was really through the Jewish rituals of mourning. I'm not Jewish, but my wife is, and we raised our children as Jews. They got born by mitzvah, and we were active members of our temple. And so when they died, I really leaned on the Jewish traditions of mourning because I didn't have any of my own. And uh, and sitting Shiva was sort of one of the early ones we encountered. The first seven days after the funeral, you sit Shiva, and people come to your house, and you have the opportunity to talk to them and we did about Ruby and Hart and about our grief. And it suddenly it felt so right and so necessary. And so shortly after Shiva ended, I started writing 
what would become a one person show about grief. I think just because I needed to, I needed to, in order to process it, I needed to share. And, um, and I'm from a theater background. So, uh, so it made sense that I would turn to a piece of theater as a way of expressing myself. And then I was all set to actually perform this one person show. And then COVID occurred and the whole world went down to, went into lockdown. And so I couldn't perform it live to anybody. I didn't want to do it over Zoom. So then I started writing the book. <laughs> I guess it was just this need to, to both share, but then also to be of use. I felt like when I started writing the book, it, it felt a little like um, here's an avenue towards meaning and purpose. Here's something that, uh, you know, a, a, a reason I could have to, to still be alive. I could do something useful. Um, so I think that was really the spur for writing the book. There's a clip that your publicity department shared with me where you are on stage. I mean, it just made me howl out loud because after my mom died, I ordered every book that I hadn't already read. You know, my field was already grief and loss and mm. I just ate them alive until they betrayed me, you know, until they stopped <laughs> telling a story that was relatable to me. And then I would throw them across the room and my husband would come home and be like, oh, you know, how did this person personally betray you? each time you just just the clips that i saw are you know there's a lot of humor in the really raw truth which is it doesn't matter who mm. writes what books really you know we we don't find our answers there we might find some companionship in those books mm -hmm. but really we have to figure it out ourselves for ourselves and you do such a gorgeous job particularly you write a lot about the Jewish traditions. I was raised Catholic, but mm. if I could go back and pick, I would absolutely pick Judaism. It's centuries old. And there's a reason for that. The traditions that are there are there to hold you. And Shiva, mm. when you describe it and you describe it, not just for yourself, but also for your brother and for your wife, it's not comfortable for everybody. Not everybody wants that. Mm. But so much of what we do as grievers is the worst thing ever. And we do it anyway. I feel like you write about this. It's so encouraging in like a coaching, like we're going to push you a little bit, <laughs> even if you don't want to, it might be good for you. So I'm wondering if you could talk about the title of the book and what the, what sort of where that came from and what those words have meant for you. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, so the title is Finding the Words, Working Through Profound Loss and Grief. I have lots of thoughts about grief, but I think one of the central ideas that I talk about in the book is the idea of articulating both our needs and our grief to other people. I think that so often grief is a taboo subject. It becomes the elephant in the room. And so, you know, I remember being in early grief and being going over to uh, a friend's house for a gathering and people are talking about politics and, and the world. And I'm just thinking, my children were just killed. How can you, how can you not talk about this, right? How we have to talk about, you loved my children too. I know you did, right. I know you do. How can we not be talking about it? And it was only because people felt uncomfortable. They were nervous. Of course they wanted to talk about Ruby and Hart and, and their deaths, but they didn't, they were too scared to. They didn't um, want to make and, you feel bad as if you didn't already feel bad, right? Like, oh, exactly. I don't want to make you feel bad. You know what? You can right. be sure you're not going to make me feel bad. <laughs> right. Nothing you're going to do or say is going to be worse than what happened to me. Right. Don't worry My about it. My children dying. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And even I think there also there's a fear of what if they just start to cry? Yeah. And I think one of my realizations was about crying was that I also felt like I needed to cry. Yeah. That was like a thing I needed to do. So far from upsetting me, if you talked about Ruby and Hart and I started to cry, that was a good thing because I needed to, because I started to feel physically sick if I didn't for too long. So yeah, it just seems so important to communicate that to people and have a much better experience grieving rather than all the, I think there's so much attendant misery that comes with loss, you know, feeling abandoned by friends, feeling isolated, feeling alone. Yeah. Um, as, if, as if it's not bad enough that we lost our loved one. We have to have these other things on top of it. And I, I think if we can avoid those, it'd just be so much better. 
Yeah. I said this to you off mic too. I think there is this like weird, perverse sort of like, well, what can we do about it? You know, like, well, grief is individual. There's, you know, nothing we can really do. You know, people have to go through it. And those of us that are, have been on the other side can tell you like, yeah, look, there's no real list. Say these things and everyone will feel better or don't say these things and you'll prevent hurt. Like we know that's not true, but there are some things that do seem to be universally true around, Mm -hmm. you know, particularly sudden profound loss. And I find it really startling that with all the books that we've read that say the same things that there isn't a better sort of cultural understanding of saying your children's names, Ruby and Hart, that is a loving grief gesture and asking you know, what can you tell me about your children? I want to hear about your children. I mean, there wasn't a story you wrote in your book, all of which are beautiful, all the little details that you share about them that doesn't invite me to love them with you. Uh Right. And that's all we want is to not be left alone with the love that has been transformed into primarily pain at this moment. Yeah. Yeah. And the idea that uh, the idea of, of being afraid of the pain is also, I think, holding us back. It's, yeah. it's like we, we have to experience the pain because that's we love them so much and having them not be here is going to cause us pain. There's no way around that. No way. So, you know, you, somebody talking about Ruby and Hart being worried that they're going to cause me pain. It's, that's, <laughs> that's part of the deal. I'm going to be in pain. That's okay. It's okay that I'm in pain. Yeah, that's right. People often ask me around anniversaries, what can I do to get through this day? And I always kind of scratch at that question, like, what do you mean? And often what they mean is, so it's not painful. And a phrase that I use all the time is it's always going to be this way. Like we don't get through a day and decide to circumnavigate the pain. And again, I feel like, the words in your book are really encouraging people to see that as sort of like the goal, you know, like what we're moving Mm -hmm. towards is being able to find the threshold of leaning into the pain without distorting it for ourselves. And you give so many examples of how you and your wife find ways to do that. One part Mm. of the book that made me laugh really hard was the burn book section. Um, (laughs) You tell a story of just the least empathetic, most horrific evil character who (laughs) attends to you all when you are saying your last goodbyes to Ruby and Hart in the funeral home. And the man is just like something out of central casting in the way they (laughs) describe him. And he becomes this villain. And I wonder if you can talk about a little bit what the the writing either for Gail, your wife, in the burn book component, or just sort of writing out feelings in general. Um, yeah, yeah. Are like for you. Yeah, well, well that, that's specifically what you're talking about is the, is the writing out the rage. Yeah. I think, I think that grief, uh, it comes with so much rage because we've been robbed, right? right? Someone we loved was taken from us. And we're helpless. We couldn't prevent it. And it's that helplessness, I think, just naturally lends itself to anger, frustration, and rage at the universe. And it, it needs to be expressed in some way, and hopefully not hurtful, right? We don't want to turn on our friends and family, but often I think that's what happens because we've got so much just anger at the injustice of it all. And if we can find some positive way, you know, even if, even if we can find some humor in it, which is what the burn book is, yeah. <laughs> the burn book of rage. So writing out just how infuriated we are and, and picking a villain, even if they're not even a real villain, even if there's a sweet person who sure. just looked at us with too much pity in their eyes, right? That's also infuriating. Yeah. Oh, Flap them. so sorry. Flap their faces. Don't you dare. <laughs> Right. Okay. And uh, not to their face, you know, but writing it out in the privacy of our home or telling a close friend, you know, our, our stories of rage. I think it really helped us. Uh, it helped us to sort of um, move through it 
and let it go. Yeah. Yeah. Dark humor. Dark humor. Well, humor is a big, a big part, right? It's a big part of your show. And again, from the clips mm. that I watched, I think one of the things that's really incredible about performance is when you can take us from one emotion, make us laugh, and then right to the knife edge of tears, which mm. certainly, certainly you do. And I think one of the things you talk about in the book is being able to use things like humor or maybe even a little bit of denial or anger or frustration in a productive way and not a dysfunctional way. It's sort of like anything, you know, any good food out there, we can probably eat too much of it or any good exercise out there, we can probably abuse it. I wanted to ask a little bit about when you're, when you are describing your process and particularly with your wife, you talk to us about some statistics, you correct some, some things, some tropes out there about what Mm. it's like to be a married couple who experience a loss. Can you just tell the audience about that? Cause I've done, I don't know, 90 podcasts and I know that statistic, but I don't know that we've talked about it here. Yeah, it's such a strange thing because so many people would tell me to my face that, you know, after the death of a child, most most couples divorce. And it seemed like such a strange thing to say to me. Right. <laughs> like, that's so that's also upsetting. be on the lookout for that. So start worrying about <laughs> right. that now with your grief. Exactly. With your calling, okay? Exactly. What am I supposed to do with that? And and you know. It didn't seem anecdotally true to me because in all my grief groups, I didn't know any couples who had divorced after the death of their child. I knew people who were divorced before their child died, just coincidentally, but but not afterwards. And so that felt strange and wrong. And even in my own marriage, Gail and I, we felt closer than ever because here we are on this journey, this agonizing journey where we have each other and that's that's it. You know, we're the only people who know what it's like to lose our children, Ruby and Hart. <laughs> you know, nobody else has Ruby and Hart as their children. That's right. And so we share this powerful experience and reality. And it it certainly drew us closer. And so then I encountered sort of an explanation of where this came from. Um, and I read it in this online article in TAPS. And I, and I credit the author in, in the book. But she wrote about how this early grief, this early grief book uh, from the seventies was super powerful, and in it, she, the author mentions the idea that ninety percent of couples report challenges in their marriage after the death of a child. And well, Shock. yeah, I, I think ninety percent of couples have challenges in their marriage. Period. On a Tuesday, <laughs> just on a Tuesday, <laughs> right? Yeah. Right. So, but somehow that got transmogrified into divorce, 90% of couples divorce. And it's like, wait a minute, that's not true. But so many people take it as truth. So even other grievers told me that quote, Yeah, and told me that statistic. And so that was a real eye opener, you know, as to why, why do we as a society feel the need to, to, to think that's true? That's interesting too, right? It's somehow like, we, we want to believe that I don't know. It's so catastrophic that obviously life ends, you know, but it it doesn't end. Yeah. Yeah. It colors everything, but life does, life goes on. And so that's our task is to, how do we stay engaged in life and live a full life? You know, one of the things that I thought was so beautiful in your book is how you talk about your processes. You know, you, talk about wanting to connect with your brother, wanting to connect with male friends, wanting to Mm. write, feel pain. And again, it feels to me like encouragement, right? Like it feels like hope. So Mm. what's really dangerous about that statistic is like, well, you are the victim of this terrible, awful thing. And guess what? Now your house is unstable and your everything else Mm -hmm. is going to fall down. And I feel like grief is the hardest most universal thing. Every, it doesn't matter who you are, you will do it right. at some point in your life. Not everybody's will be a catastrophe or as shocking or terrible or untimely, but we will grieve every one of us to have it feel hopeless and more terrifying is got to be the antithesis. I mean, we should not be aiming for that. So I was really grateful <laughs> to see you ask us to shift this, but also 
describe so concretely elements of what you two, husband and wife, two best friends do in order to stay connected, stay connected with your community. And you have a chapter about spiel, about creating the spiel. <laughs> and can you just describe that to the audience? Like, what is that? Yeah. And, and then your That's wife my, goes my on. To spiel. Do, yeah, your wife goes on to do something really unique with the spiel at work. So I'd love mm-hmm. for you to just yeah. tell folks about that. Yeah, yeah. So after Shiva, I just realized how important it was for me to talk about my loss and about Ruby and Hart to my friends. But they were so terrified, like we said earlier, about saying the wrong thing, but they wouldn't really say anything at all. It was, they would come to the front door and and, in terror. And so I and my wife, we developed this thing that I called our grief spiel. We'd pull them aside individually and say, here's the deal. (laughs) It's okay to talk about Ruby and Hart. In fact, we need to talk about Ruby and Hart. We need to say their names. We need to talk about our grief. And so, uh, and here, here's our needs right now, our conversational needs. And in early grief, I felt like we were allowed to do that because our friends yeah. wanted that. They wanted to be told what the rules were because they didn't yeah. know. And so it was such a relief to them. Um, and we could say, well, we didn't want to hear, right? So, you know, I, I'm kind of obnoxious. But <laughs> and so I said, you know, I don't give a shit about your cat that just died or your grandma that just died. Yeah. Now I do. Now I care if somebody's pet yeah. dies and their grandmother. Absolutely. But in acute grief, no, okay. I don't. I didn't have the bandwidth yeah. because some people did. They would tell me about these other losses that happened, you know, 10 years ago. Oh, I lost my cousin 10 years ago. Some kind of a way to, yeah. I don't know, connect, but it, it didn't land right with me because it felt like a comparison. Totally. Um, and I, I did, again, now I can absolutely commiserate with other losses, but at the time I couldn't. Um, but it was so helpful to be that clear. And then when we went back to work, there was also that feeling of like, if we're not open about our grief and our loss, what's it going to be like there? People can be whispering quietly. Oh, did you know that so-and-so, you know, their children are dead. Like it would just feel so terrible to be whispered about and have this elephant in the room that no one would talk about. So we realized we wanted to share our grief spiels with our work colleagues as well. We're both fortunate that we work in environments that, that, that are open to that. So I, I don't know if anybody, everybody can do exactly what we did, but I think everyone should have some kind of, not should, but <laughs> it would help. It could be helpful if they all found ways of having it not be a taboo subject around them in, in their workplaces as well. So Gail sent a really beautiful email ahead of time to one of her work <clears throat> environments to give people the heads up. And they all found that very helpful as well you're distinguishing what it's like in acute and sort of more fresh grief and then what it's like to carry mm-hmm. grief over time. And a lot of what I teach people about is like, what is going on inside your brain and your body? Why can you not attend to other people? Why do you feel mm-hmm. and angry and exhausted and have no memory? And a lot of that yeah. education, people are like, I don't give a shit. But many people are like, wow, that's actually really helpful in normalizing. And I feel like Mm. what you guys have done, which I don't know is the everyday griever, by the way, but what you and your wife do is you take ownership of the experience and don't Mm. assume that anyone is going to be able to navigate it perfectly without guidance from you. And that is the truth of grief. You Mm. shouldn't have to tell people what to do. You shouldn't have to guide them. It shouldn't be on you to teach people at a time when really you should just be getting cups of tea, but that is the way that it is. And so if you can step into that and then invite the conversation, people get to co-create. So I did want to ask you a little bit about that. Did you make mistakes in your assumptions about what would be good for you? You tell this incredible story about your 50th birthday, which you turn into this gorgeous memorial service. And I felt really jealous when I was reading because I have a really hard time. And as do many people that I work with, they're like, I don't know if I should take people out to dinner for an anniversary, or I don't know Mm. what's going to feel good. And so I'm curious if 
the going into the process and wondering how this would be. Did you ever get it spectacularly wrong? Like, God, I thought this was going to be great, but it was terrible. Um, no, never spectacularly wrong. Um, okay. I was nervous that the beach might go spectacularly wrong because people thought that it was too much. To, I know, to, um, you got a lot of feedback from people that they thought, oh, yeah. I don't know, Colin. Yeah, yeah. you got to get a skate valve. So, so for my 50th birthday, which was three months after the car crash, I had a, uh, I used to have a big beach, I called it my beach birthday bash every year. And I sandwiches for all my friends and Ruby's friends and Hart's friends and Gail's friends. And we'd have a big party on the beach. It was such a great chill day. And here it is now, you know, 50th birthday, like halfway through life, sort of. <laughs> and, and my life was destroyed. How can I, you know, have a party? But I changed it to a memorial for Ruby and Hart instead. And, um, and still I went ahead and got sandwiches for everybody and everyone gathered and even though it seemed like maybe it would be spectacularly painful to see all of Ruby and Hart's friends and my friends at a beach, it actually was really a day of solace. It was really yeah. helpful to me um, and to my community of grievers because they're all grieving Ruby and Hart too. It's not just yeah. me, they're, they're in grief as well. And giving us all an action to take was so helpful. The only time I, that I, I do have one regret for one of the rituals, I, I've done a a, a number of rituals over the years because they helped me so much. But it was last year, their birthday is one day apart. So they're three years mm -hmm. apart, but it's actually one day apart, March 29th and March 30th. And so we held a, a candle light, candle lit vigil last year in a park nearby. And it was, it was amazing. A huge circle of people with candles at night. It was so beautiful, except it was very windy. And the candles kept blowing out. And so we kept trying to light them and relight them. And it was cold. It was unexpectedly cold in Los Angeles in March. Mm. And so I realized at one point, this was, was, was a nice moment. I said, look, this is the reality. I, we can't keep these candles lit all at the same time. They're all going to get blown out and that's okay. Let's just go ahead and let them all get blown out before we want them to, because that was Ruby and Hart's life, beautiful candles that were blown out too early. And it was beautiful. And we all sat and watched them all get blown out. Mm. But I had told everyone that we were going to gather and then share stories about Ruby and Hart. But because it was so cold and it took so long to have this all happen, that I, I, I just said, okay, th thank you all for coming. And I ended it. And I wished I had just said, even though we're cold and uncomfortable, we all came here to share stories about Ruby and Hart and let's gather close and tell stories. And that's my one regret that I, that I did have a vision for what would be good for me. And I didn't chicken out, but I was just like, oh, we're, it's cold and it's too long. And I felt like I was burdening people. And in fact, I wasn't. Uh, and some people came up to me and told me stories, even as people were leaving, because they were so desperate. They're like, I want to tell yeah. you about Ruby and Hart. Yeah. So I feel, I feel like that's my one ritual regret that I had, that I didn't stick to my guns because I did know what would be good. And I got nervous in the end, I guess. Yeah. About, about making people feel like they were staying for too long. You know, you have such good instincts. I, I talk about sort of as a grief educator, really trying to help people when they're in those early days and they don't know what to do. I actually have mm. a menu card that I can, I hold up and I'm like, oh. these are things that people have told me have brought them different energy. I don't even say good or bad, just like different mm. you know, energy moves through you. And it's everything from like cooking, gardening, singing, dancing, running. It's all yeah. INGs, right? It's all an action because, you know, grieve is a verb. So it's something to do mm. of some kind. Yes. And, and then I say, just stop, you know, it's like those letter games where like, you know, what the first word you see is how, what your week is going to be like, like, just stop on the one and let that be your hypothesis. Try that. Mm. But I yeah. work with lots of people who have things like they went to yoga thinking it was going to be peaceful or they took a bath and it made them panicky instead of calm. Yeah. And so they're kind yes. of like not able to do so much of it in their thinking, they end up in there and they do, it does feel worse. They did make it worse. Mm. Their big fear mm -hmm. was that things were going to be worse and they wanted it to be better. And in fact, it's worse for a moment. 
and then yeah. you know they have to get up and leave or they have to overcorrect but one of the things that i think is so distinct in your book is this concept of creating rituals and that those rituals for you which again i don't know would be for all the clients that i've worked with instinctively connected to others you are always mm. inviting other people in and you even it's the kaddish right where it's 10 people that yeah. that you're even rooting it sort of in, in the Jewish tradition of we don't even say this prayer of mourning unless there are nine other people present. Yeah, I think it's, it's so beautiful. That's that's the rule, you know, and it's such a brilliant rule. You know, you you have to say the mourner's Kaddish. You have, and in in that action, you are of course bringing up grief. You're you're talk, you're saying this mourner's prayer, but you can't do it alone. There has to be at least nine other people with you. Like, wow, what's that's brilliant. So you, that means you have to gather people over and over again to witness and share your grief. That's the rule. Such a brilliant approach to grieving. But I, I did want to say I did, I did do things that, that, as you say, in the moment felt worse. So I did do grief meditation that I did not like. That, oh, yeah, that, you mentioned that. Uh, yeah. And so it, I wouldn't say it went spectacularly wrong, but it did feel like in the moment, you know, you're, you're asked to sort of clear your, clear your mind. And I was like, I'm not clearing my mind. I'm thinking about Ruby and Hart. Don't you dare tell me to clear my mind. (laughs) And so it was just that I was not in the right place for grief yoga at that moment, you know, but even that was community building because I went with other grievers from my grief group and some of them really got a lot out of it. And some of them felt like I did. And so we could commiserate (laughs) and that built community, but also we got out of the house. So even just, we were out of the house, we were doing something. Like you said, you know, the ING verbs, grieving is is a verb. And that was really struck me early on because I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing. What was I doing? And, and all the images we get from television and film about grief feels to me like you go away and you're sad. That's Such what grieving bullshit. is. You, in yeah. your corner, you go off in your own little corner and you just sit there for a while until you're fixed and can come back. <laughs> and that's so the opposite of what grieving is. It's something you do in community, largely in community, not, not exclusively, of course, but, but it helps to not feel isolated in grief. For sure. Well, and it helps everybody. So a lot of the work I do with companies is, you know, some of it is grief education. And then it's just what kind of culture do you want to have? Mm-hmm. What do you want to be translating to your community about whether or not you are a community that can embrace people who are grieving, which I mean, we probably all should be, particularly with COVID. And Right. And then also, how are you skilled in doing that, right? What can you demonstrate to folks in terms of what you know mm-hmm. and sharing community experiences? You, nobody learns anything as concretely as being invited into something that maybe feels scary and confusing because they don't know what's going to happen there and they don't know what it's about. And then two hours later, they do know what was going to happen there and they do know what uh-huh. it's about and they do have an image and an idea and that people do bring things, you know, if you're not raised Jewish, you learn about what the Kaddish is and you yeah. understand. So that concept of like, what is it that, what are we doing when we are inviting people into community? We are asking them to hold and bear witness to our pain, which is unbearable. And so we do feel as humans safer. Actually, there's neuroscience behind this when we are in extreme situations and other people are there. So there's that. Yeah. And we are helping them we are you know preemptively maybe helping them if they haven't been through it before and if it's my moment and my memorial service and I'm inviting people in who have grieved in their life then I'm inviting their grief to come sit with my grief as a western culture we isolate we say absolutely go to therapy on your lunch hour you are welcome to grieve here (laughs) that's right say that What we don't say is we have a library. Let's all read a book together. We could listen to a podcast. Why don't we ask Max if he wants to talk to us about his experience? We don't do Mm. that quite as much. Partly, I think, because we don't see it. Every time there's a TV show that shows us the age old trope of what grief looks like, which is like one episode, people cry, they wear black, you know, I don't know, somebody does something inappropriate. 
And then <laughs> we don't talk about that really again. It just slays me because it's such a missed opportunity yeah. to help us right. see what is, and there are some, you know, there are some examples of TV shows that do a great job, but not very many. And no, no, no. So, so often the, the, the idea is like, particularly with child loss, that it's so painful that the parent doesn't speak the name of their child, right? <laughs> it's like, what do you, you know, five years later, they finally get the courage to speak the name of their dead child. I'm like, well, I was speaking the name of my dead child constantly five minutes after they were killed. How would I not say their names? Like, how, how am I going to bury Ruby and Hart and not even say their names? It makes no sense, but that's what it's, that's what's shown in films and television. Right. And I, I think the biggest fear and the thing that drives people crazy is when, particularly when your loss is untenable and you say it in your show, people don't want to talk to me. They don't want to look at me. They don't want to think about me. They don't, because they don't want to think about it. They do not want to have empathy for you because that means they mm. take their feelings and they connect them to your feelings and they cannot bear the concept, but neither yeah. can you. You didn't wake up one morning and think, you know what I'd be able to survive is the tragic, <laughs> unexpected death of my two teenagers. And in fact, I still sometimes I'm like, I still can't believe my mom died. I can't believe she's been dead this many years. I can't believe I've lived mm -hmm. this many years on the planet without her. We begin to integrate that information. But I think part of what, what happens when we see something that is unbearably tragic and we think I could never live through that is we turn away from it like it's catching, like it's something that's mm -hmm. going to come near us instead right. of what is true, which is human beings bear the unbearable every day. I want to ask that's you amazing. about rituals. You yeah. write about rituals and you write some, I have to tell you, mo many of them made me tear up. I think it's an, an underdeveloped part of my grieving process, the, the idea of mm. bringing ritual can you just talk about some of the things that you and your wife do to honor your children and think about your children and to say Ruby and heart every day? It's yeah. just such a gorgeous practice. Uh, thank you. Uh, yeah, we, we want them. They're, they're with us and they're accompanying us as we move through life and we want to bring them along with us. And so thinking about them and talking about them feels hard but good that's always hard but good it's always uh good because of you know you pay a little bit of a price <laughs> but in the end it, it's better um to see their pictures and talk about them and so we've built little rituals you know we, we toast ruby and art every time we have a cocktail or a glass of wine and we have lots of da little daily rituals the whole idea of rituals again i i got it from the jewish tradition yeah and the in the jewish tradition they have shiva for seven days after the funeral. Then the next event is called the end of Shloshim. Shloshim is the first 30 days after the funeral. And you're supposed to mark the end of Shloshim with some kind of a ritual, but they don't say what it is, which, right. which is interesting. Usually the Jewish tradition is very specific about <laughs> what you do. Very That's right. it is. This one is it's just like, you've got to mark it. It's a thing that happens. And the rules change after that end of Shloshim, but you've got to mark it somehow. And so we're like, okay, we're going to design our own ritual. And it ended up being this beautiful gathering. We had taken Ruby and Hart to this park in Los Angeles called the LA Arboretum. It's this big, beautiful park. Their whole lives we've been going there over and over again. And we all four loved it. And so we had noticed that you can get trees to somebody, uh, get a little plaque on them. And we thought, oh, it would be beautiful to dedicate two trees to Ruby and Hart. But the end of Shoshin was coming soon. And we're like, okay, let's prepare for it. And so we went to the park to find two trees to dedicate to them. And the park was really nice. They said they would expedite the process. So it would be there in time for the ceremony. And we were walking around in the most remote section of this big park. And I saw these two trees, these Engelman oaks, these beautiful old trees. And their branches were intertwined up high in the sky, almost as if they're like, we're hugging each other or holding each other up, these two trees. I thought, oh my God, this is like Ruby and Hart. They love each other so much. Such a beautiful image. And then this family of coyotes loped by and we thought, wow, this place is wild. Like it's a park, but yeah. <laughs> there's coyotes just loping right. by a whole bunch of them. <laughs> Ruby and Hart would have loved it. 
Yeah. They would love that. So it was like, okay, we found the spot. And so we gathered just a, our closest friends into a circle there. And the rabbi said some prayers and we shared stories about Ruby and Hart and people laughed and cried together. Another friend sang a song and we, we all held, held hands and then touched the trees. So we included Ruby and Hart's trees in our circle. And it was so beautiful and also so painful. Yeah. It was really like, wow, that took our hearts through the ringer. But isn't that what we want? <laughs> Don't we want to feel all the good and the bad? And so there's always a part of, a part of me that's like, oh, I always want to gather people and, and feel all those feelings. But then in the end, it's, the answer is always yes. Yeah. It's always yes, I do. I do want to feel those feelings. And they allow me to feel more joy and more lightness with time as I think about Ruby and Hart. Mm-hmm. So I, I always think like the proportions of pain, pain versus joy. And in the early days, looking at their pictures or videos, the pain quotient was really high yeah. <laughs> and the joy quotient was pretty low. But I just trusted if I keep doing it, I will gradually, the proportion will change. The pain won't go away. I'll never stop aching for Ruby and Hart. Uh, never. But in my heart, there's going to be more and more room for joy. And don't I want that for myself? Isn't that a better way to honor Ruby and Hart and their memory? So that's sort of the bargain I made with myself. Mm. And, and so far, it's been true. <laughs> it's well, gotten think- better and better. I'm always grateful for all the different ways people can give us information and help us feel like, gosh, that makes sense to me. But you do Mm -hmm. a really beautiful job with that ritual. And in general, when you're talking about words like suffering or sorrow, that you are inviting us into your concepts around a really big theme, which is, you know, a, a trauma Losing Mm. your children is an unbearable trauma. Being traumatized means that that is the most significant thing about their lives for you is that they died. And there is a period of time where that is the case. The thing that is most relevant is that my children are not here with me. And what I think is distinct when children die is that you are losing who they were on this earth and all of your dreams for the future. It's this temporal grief of like, you're losing the past and the future and future versions of yourselves, experiences you expected to have, which is not the same as when your 97 year old beloved grandmother dies. You get it from all sides in that moment, but what you are coaching us with in every one of your chapters with the normalcy and the speaking, the words of, you know, you talk about sex, which I was so grateful because because again, that's a body regulation thing there. There's a Mm -hmm. part sex drives are in a certain particular part of our brain. And while our brain is fucked up, those sex drives can be fucked up. And eventually if your brain starts to come back into order, that should all come back into order. But you talk Mm -hmm. about that and you talk about sort of a masculine form of grieving all of it is encouraging us to believe and hope that what we will get to reconnect with is the joy and the belief that there won't only just be this terribly terrible, unbearable thing that has happened in your life. And I, I know because you lead to us to it at the end of the book, and I know you have some updates that your family has continued to grow So do you want to give us a little bit of information about that too? Because obviously that doesn't offset any pain, but it does show us, doesn't, it it would never would, but it does remind us that we keep putting our feet into the present and the future, even though these terrible things are part of our lives. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for asking. Yeah. So Ruby and Hart, Ruby was 17 and Hart was 14 when they were killed and we were, we felt like we were past the age of making new babies, but we still wanted to be parents. That was our identity. They were in our homes. You know, some people lose their kids, but their kids already left home. And so I think it must feel a little differently um, 
if you lost a, a child who's an adult child out in their own in the world. But Ruby and Hart were still in our home on a day-to-day basis. We were driving them to hang out with their friends and after school things, everything, our whole lives. And so we really pined for teens, being parents of teens. And so we started exploring foster adoption. And here are a, a large group of kids in our Los Angeles area who need a permanency plan that includes adoption, that parental reunification or kin reunification for whatever reason has been decided to be off the table by the judges. The courts and the social workers have deemed it not safe for these kids to be reunified with their families, but they need a home and they've endured so much trauma, these kids, often a lifetime worth of trauma. And we thought, well, um, we could foster to adopt and maybe because we know about trauma and grief and loss, that we might be good candidates to connect with them. And so in the book, we started fostering to adopt a teen, 13-year-old girl, and she lived with us for a year and a half. And ultimately, she was unable to or unwilling to connect. She didn't want, decided, she changed her mind and didn't want to be adopted. Mm -hmm. She wanted to go back to the foster system and age out and just have her independence and not be emotionally vulnerable as part of a family. And that was heartbreaking to us, um, very hard. And it reminded us that just because we lost Ruby and Hart doesn't mean that we're immune to loss. You know, we'll all keep experiencing losses. It's not like you get a a (laughs) one-off. Nobody's immune from loss and grief. But we decided to keep trying. And now we have a brother and sister. They moved in about a month and a half ago in 12 and she just turned 12 and and I think it's going really well uh, and it's certainly not uh, a solution to grief in any way if anything it it brings up more of our aching and loss because here we are parenting yeah. people and we're not parenting Ruby and Hart and they're in Ruby and Hart's rooms yeah. and so there's that process of being in life that it's hard but it feels good to us. It feels like this is what we want to do. We want to be in life with other people in a family. And so even though it's definitely on the surface, a harder path, it'd be much, you know, quote unquote easier if it was just us doing whatever we want. But ultimately I think it's actually easier in the grand scheme of life. If easier is the right word, more engaged in life. And so we're getting a lot out of it. And uh, yeah. It's a beautiful reminder that we don't stop being the roles that we lose Mm. when we lose our people. Ruby Mm. and Hart were your two children and they died, but you and Gail did not stop being parents and bringing children into your home. You get to be active parents to children. And I... I think one of the things that's so impossible about particularly sudden loss is all the parts of yourself that get rearranged and that you lose. And I have been really stunned, deeply stunned to discover because my mom and I had sort of a bumpy relationship in my early twenties. And I was really enjoying knowing her as a grown woman and Mm. as a mother myself. And I can get myself really angry that I feel like I got shortchanged on those years. What has been really hard, just as you just described, it always hurts. It's always bittersweet is to feel myself being mothered by people who are Mm. not my mother, Mm. that there are hundreds of ways that that role still exists in my life because I need it. I need to be a daughter. I'm not done with that role. And when I, when I read that part of your book, I was like, oh my God, this makes so much sense to me that there's a progression that you want to participate in being parents. And I just, I think it's brave. I think everything about grieving is brave, but there's something about that wanting that it's even the way you write about it. Isn't just, we wanted to give to someone else. It was we want to be parents. We want to continue to be parents. Your book is so raw and so real and so smart and funny 
and very concrete. <laughs> you give us very specific things to try and do in journal entries at the end. I just loved it. I said to my assistant, I was like, I can't, I have things I have to do, but I can't stop reading this book. And I oh, really hope I get to come and see your show. The idea of getting up and performing your grief every night, embodying it, allowing yourself mm. to share it. It's really startling to hear people laughing, but also relieving. <laughs> I feel like you're a little bit of a shaman and that you've got some wisdom <laughs> we can follow, not because you're wow. telling us what to do, but because you're showing us what's possible wow. as a clinician and as a griever. I'm so grateful. I really am wow. so grateful that you, that you and your family and your community have, have put the words down, but also been so game to share what, what this has been like for you. Thank you. That means a lot. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's shocking. My show, uh, some of the jokes are dark. Yeah, they are. (laughs) And sometimes the audience is laughing. I'm like, do you realize what you just laughed at? Oh my God. (laughs) I'm thinking that as I'm performing, like, oof, you guys are laughing too loud. That's, that's a really dark joke I just made. But then it, you know, it, it all turns around, I think, and the, the show ends in a very, a very open and I think a loving place. It's been a real honor to know about Ruby and Hart. Also, my my 15-year-old daughter has OCD. I showed her oh. the um the piece that you all published that she wrote. I just really fell in love with your family and your kids. I I oh, really did. And that was such a heartbreaking but beautiful invitation to get to know them. And, oh. and you know, I don't know that I'll eat Cheetos and not think of your kids <laughs> hot spicy hot cheetos spicy hot cheetos they are not my favorite but every once in a while no, I end up that either. bag instead of the regular bag and i have a feeling that it was heart who liked spicy heart heart like the okay. spicy hot cheetos. he would always offer me one like here have one i was like i've had one many times i don't like I don't it but okay it. i'll do it i'll try again i'll try again see if i like it this time he was so convinced how could you not like this? How bag? could you not like it? It's the best food on the planet. Colin, this has been such yeah. a real gift of an hour. Thank oh, you so thank much. You. And, Me too. You know, thank you for, for all that you have done to, to bring us oh. your story and your guidance and your hope. It's just, I'm always really, oh. really grateful. Thank you oh. so much. Good luck with thank everything. Thank you so much. I really appreciate Bye, this. Megan. Take care, Colin. Bye-bye.